This is the sound of turning ideas into software. This is the sound of engineering and passion. Work. Work more. Work harder. Experiment. Build. Break. And build again. Write code. Improve it. Job done. Celebrate. Insurance. Finance. Retail. Defense. Robotics. Energy. Amethyx. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the usual office of Amethyx Technologies based in Brussels City, Belgium. Today I want to speak about something of which I am definitely passionate about. Software architectures and the quality of software, uh, which is something that uh, I uh, immensely respect as a, as a field. And these days or these years, even more so, I've seen some kind of degradation uh, of software quality and uh, also uh, about the principles and uh, the best practices that are usually uh, considered by uh, developer teams or single developers uh, pretty much around the world, pretty much in every sector. And uh, the reason of this show is, of course, uh, to express a bit of my concern related to the quality of software today um, and what probably what we can do uh, in order to, let's say, go back to the uh, old good days of quality software. I'm not saying that software from the past has always been, uh, let's say, of high quality, uh, but uh, having been in the field for about three decades now, uh, I have this feeling that software from the past were was probably uh, simpler, but also uh, much well written. Um, and this is kind of a personal feeling, of course, uh, it would be nice to know what you think about. Uh, and for that, we have a, a Discord channel that you can definitely join, actually invite you uh, to look at the uh, official website datascienceatome.com and find the link to the Discord server and just join us in uh, uh, many of the technical and non-technical conversations. So what we have seen, what, why, what I've seen, uh, especially with the advent of artificial intelligence and especially large language models, uh, you know, people generating code or programming with these tools, which is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, but it's something that we should definitely consider uh, when we think about quality of software uh, in the next few months uh, or years, probably months, because these tools uh, can generate code and, as you know, can change the way we do things uh, almost overnight. There are several principles that I will try to remember from uh, um, the good old school of Unix uh, when it comes to uh, software development principles. Uh, but of course, there are many books out there. I will try to squeeze some of the best references, in my opinion, in the show notes of this episode at datascienceatome.com. But uh, what I want to say, what I want to start from is uh, from the concept of architecture and uh, uh, what historically we have seen, you know, what we had to deal with in the last few years or decades, uh, which is indeed different types of architectures. We started from the uh, so-called applets. I don't know if some of you is, uh, still remembers the how bad applets were, this kind of micro world that 
could not speak with each other. So you usually found these things in a browser or in a front-end application. And many times these applets just died or just became obsolete, uh, giving you usually web pages or uh, applications, you know, front-end applications that uh, in some of their components were actually not no longer working. And this happened almost all of a sudden. We remember the, the times of Java and the uh, Java applets and, and all that stuff that was running in the browser, pretty bad stuff in my opinion. So if you don't remember that, uh, that's actually a good thing. Then we had, um, of course, before that we had Unix programs. And, uh, and those are kind of the reference I would like to consider for this uh, conversation today. I'll get back to Unix programs later um, but because I want to mention, uh, you know, I want to first enlist the, the type of architectures that we have seen, software architectures, of course. Uh, we had plugins, we still do. Uh, in fact, most of the software we deal with today from our favorite IDE to our web browser and many, many other applications there. Um, think about Blender, uh, you know, all these things or Photoshop uh, or any other audio or media application, all of these things almost always use plugins. And uh, the concept of plugin is very powerful if it's handled well. And finally, we have for the DevOps guys and backend people, the concept of microservice, which is kind of an entire world that can more or less survive on its own uh, and deliver the features it's, uh, it, it's implemented, it's implementing uh, kind of independently from the rest, though it's not 100% true independently because, you know, these microservices at some point have to communicate with each other. And if we think uh, the way all these objects have been, you know, in the history of computing, um, the way people have connected these things, you know, we can definitely say that applets didn't have any form of connection. Um, Unix programs had so-called pipes, you know, to be connected, which means that if you had a, a list file, a grep command, a, a word count command or whatever other command in the Unix bash, for example, you could connect this, you know, independent programs with pipes, which means the output of one program becomes the input of the next one and so on. And this is probably one of the simplest, yes, yet most powerful ways to interconnect uh, applications and at the same time make them, you know, stand alone in the sense that you can definitely have a, a, a list file and a grep uh, pretty much independent and you can also put them together um, you know, easily with a pipe in between. Then we had plugins. Again, we still do have plugins. These are kind of the um, one of the most widely known ways to architect software. Um, and usually, when you think about plugins, uh, they are connected in a some kind of hub way. So there is kind of a hub that controls um, how these plugin features should interoperate with each other. And eventually the hub will extend, for example, some um, uh, capabilities of the front end by adding menus and submenus every time you load or unload a plugin. Um, and so, you know, you extend, you, you have the way, uh, plugins are a very nice way, a very elegant way to, ex 
front-end, a particular front-end in the case of a front-end, but in fact, any type of application, um, make an extension to it, adding features uh, at your, you know, kind of on-demand, which means every time you load the plugin. Um, and finally, we have microservices. And if you want to think about a way to, you know, to connect microservices with each other, we usually refer to the to the graph, right? Some kind of graph interconnection, in which any node or any microservice can be connected to pretty much any other node. Um, well, not completely true, but you know what I mean. Like you have this graph uh, of connections in which one microservice depends on a bunch of others and so on and so forth. Now, the um, reason why I am uh, expressing my concern when it comes to uh, quality of software today is in fact uh, due to the um, uh, strong contamination, if I can put it like that, of artificial intelligence and large language models. I'm uh, extremely uh, concerned about this fact, you know, the fact that people today rely probably too much on these large language models to produce software that otherwise should be, uh, you know, one step on a time was actually written uh, by hand. And the reason I mentioned the, the way, you know, the different software architectures is because as a matter of fact, nothing has changed with respect to what we had, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, so the way we, uh, I'm not saying that applets are bad or Unix programs are worse than microservices uh, because microservices are more powerful. But it's just that, you know, the way you connect these um, components or sub-module, uh, some modules really depends on what you are obtaining and how you have designed your uh, particular architecture for the specific use case. So as always, there's no right and wrong. There's just the most appropriate and the least appropriate, in my opinion. The problem is that the, uh, let's say, common ground to any type of interconnection uh, from the applet way to the Unix program way to the microservice or plugin way uh, is in fact the production of software of you know lines of code that you have to write or someone has to write uh, in order for these things to happen. And that part is the part that is actually, has actually changed in the last decades, for sure, but in the last months, if uh, uh, we you know, recall the advent of large language models. And so my concern is that while the way we interconnect things hasn't changed that much, uh, we still have microservices, we still have plugins, we still have use unique pro programs, it's what we produce um, that has you know, gone through a, a dramatic change in the way we produce software is extremely different from what we did uh, several months ago. And uh, I truly hope that we go back somehow to uh, what, uh, you know, the old school of uh, Unix programming or, you know, the Unix paradigm, in fact, uh, if you think of, you know, program design in the Unix environment, you know, nine, probably was the 80s or, or mid 80s if i'm not wrong um, when you had you know kernigan brian kernigan uh, kernigan ritchie and and uh, rob pike for example was another one um you know these were the folks who uh, put down uh, some of the most interesting and strongest opinionated rules about uh, software architecture and uh, software production 
you know, these were the guys who actually invented um, the pipe of Unix or, or, or a bash or uh, the way Unix was put together um, and how bugs are generated in a, a software developer, uh, in a team of software developers. So, uh, as a matter of fact, there is a very general way of um, estimating, let's say, the probability of having a certain number of bugs in a program, uh, which is more or less uh, dependent on the uh, number of lines of code that one produces, right? Uh, so, the more lines of code you write or you produce, and uh, the more bugs might be introduced, because simply the let's say, attack surface uh, becomes larger. Uh, and so the attack surface means like how much soft or how much, how many lines of code can be exposed to potential bugs. You know, this area, if there was an area, is definitely larger when you produce more lines of code, obviously. And uh, uh, another variable uh, that comes into play here is uh, development velocity. Um, because, of course, the faster you are to write lines, uh, the more lines you produce in the unit of time. These two quantities kind of go together. Uh, number of lines of code, so as you approach the many lines of code, it means that, you know, in the unit of time, it means that you are uh, increasing the development velocity or you simply have more people producing uh, the same amount of software. Um, and therefore, as you move towards these larger and larger numbers, you introduce more bugs, or you can introduce more bugs. Indeed, that's a probability. Um, and uh, if you think of this probability in a cumulative way, of course it makes sense that if you write 10 lines of code, the probability to squeeze a bug in there is much, much smaller than if you write 100,000 or a million lines of code. You know, that, that's quite natural uh, conclusion about this. But... There is a problem um, related to this uh, that is kind of a critical point uh, in which when you introduce a bug, of course, you need time to fix them. And of course, if you can fix bugs faster than you produce them, you know, that's kind of okay because it means that you can cope with the development velocity that produces more lines of code it also produces more bugs due to this linear relation between velocity and number of bugs introduced. So, but if you can fix them uh, within a reasonable time that is shorter than uh, the time you need to produce these bugs, uh, you are good because it means that you can cope the development velocity that you have. So you have a sustainable software development team, a team that can produce software fast enough such that they can also fix the bugs they introduce. And that's the ideal scenario. In fact, it's not just the ideal scenario. That's the scenario that many companies back in the days had. Uh, otherwise, they would have not survived for so many years or decades. With the advent of large language models, uh, this has changed completely because now you have increased development velocity because you have automated tools that allow you to generate code. And the problem is that, of course, these tools are not AGI <laughs> or, or whatever they are. Like they're, they're, sometimes we've seen even ChatGPT and all their, the family of GPT models can hallucinate. 
and therefore can generate bugs whenever they generate code, of course, or whenever someone uses them to generate code, they introduce bugs. Uh, and the problem is that the development velocity of an automated tool is so high that, of course, they can introduce bugs at a much higher rate and at a much bigger velocity than a regular developer, like a human developer. Which means that the human developers uh, who, has, who have to fix that bug or that series of bugs uh, will require more time than it is needed to introduce new bugs, right? And so that's when you hit the critical point in which your development team becomes uh, you know, no longer sustainable because it produces more bugs than it can fix. And this is you know, quite a natural conclusion of all this LLM uh, trend and uh, frenziness um, because, and, and it's one of the most you know, critical, interesting slash dramatic trends that are happening in the world of computers and, uh, and software. Even if you uh, hire very talented engineers to do code reviews and, uh, of course, bug fix, for example, well, the fact that other people, the other side of the building or of the, of the room, are using automated tools to generate code, uh, you know, they will always be exposed to the fact that this code will be buggy. Now, you can say, yes, but large language models have... Uh, you know, they will improve with the years and they will produce less and less bugs. Probably true. I'm not 100% sure about that, but let's assume that was true. Still, when you use the same uh, interconnections, um, you know, these programs that get generated somehow have to be connected with each other, right? In the form of the applets, Unix programs, microservices, or plugins, depending uh, on your use case, of course, but there will be a way, you know, to connect these things, right? Uh, the hub uh, way or the uh, graph interconnection ways or linear or the pipe interconnection a la Unix programs and so on. This, uh, the, the way you interconnect applications and, and pieces of code or, or features or plugins or microservices is a lot of boilerplate code that of course, depends on the way you connect these things. And it's when you put these things together that you generate or can generate even more bugs. You know, there is a reason why uh, we had unit tests and end-to-end -end testing. Um, you know, unit tests allow you to look at the piece of code as a singleton and just, you know, exhaustively, hopefully, if you can do that, good for you, um, exhaustively test your feature locally, let's say, separate it from the rest. But then there is the other side of uh, testing, which is, for example, integration testing or end-to-end -end testing, in which all these things, all these features that you have produced in a standalone fashion, they have to be integrated and tested when they work all together. And this means that you are making the context much, much bigger. You're growing, you're inflating the context because now you're no longer saying I'm considering this piece of code or this feature independent from the rest, but I'm saying I want to build this feature in this bigger context in which this feature has to be integrated with another hundred features. So 
that's when you know you keep raising the bar so even when you have a large language model that is extremely good at let's say producing the code or generating the code for a particular um, feature or a standalone application uh, when you put these things together uh, you are inflating the context and you are making that a large language model you are you are giving that large language model a much harder task uh, when it has to generate of course code that has to be also perfectly integrated so long story short you will always be introducing bugs uh, even when the large language model this you know in, improves in generate in the generation of the single feature code right so essentially there's no shortcut uh, and that's my you know my biggest concern i'm uh, uh, i kind of changed my mind several times when i saw llms coming out and um, you know people changing their workflows um, in marketing or in uh, generating blog posts and or, or twitter or x whatever it's called now you know that's fine uh, but when you generate software when I, I, when I saw people generating software well generating uh, programming languages you know just because they think that a large language model can generate as good text as uh, for humans as for machine for machines uh, well that's when I started you know changing my mind on LLMs because I see that people are putting uh, too much criticality in the hands of, of tools that are definitely not perfect and never will be. Uh, and that's the biggest concern, that these things never will be that, um, let's say, smart, intelligent, or just cautious about code generation. I don't expect this to happen, at least uh, in the uh, any, anytime soon. So. But I see that people are already leveraging these tools to generate software. So that's kind of a, a gap there. Uh, what these tools can give you and uh, what you as a developer are giving to these tool to, uh, tools to, to produce or to help you out with your daily job. So again, uh, this episode is uh, uh, more of a concern. I hope that um, I made a decent job explaining um, why I, sh I am concerned and why you should be concerned as well, especially if you are not very familiar with, the, with program design in the Unix environment, which is where we 40-year-old people today <laughs> learned a lot of uh, software architectures and best practices uh, in uh, software development, that it seems that these days people or certain people are kind of forgetting. And those who were never... Uh, we never faced them before, of course. Uh, I hope that this episode is uh, does a decent job at least making them aware of these uh, concepts. And uh, uh, maybe it would be nice to look into that every time you decide to delegate an automated tool like an LLM to generate code that will probably end up in a bank or in a financial system architecture or God forbid, into an healthcare or medical device tool. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you very much for listening. Speak with you next time. 
You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.